morning. If you could turn your Bibles to Exodus chapter 16 and stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. Starting in verse 1. They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and the Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by, pot, or by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill us, this whole assembly, with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day they are to prepare what they bring in. It will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to the people of Israel, At evening... You shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Amen. Turn in your Bibles to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. Then of a couple of things we wanted to, I wanted to bring to you everybody's attention before we started with the message today. Uh, first, of, first off, I uh, want to welcome Mike and Tammy back. It's been a couple of weeks since they've been back. We wanted to uh, let the whole congregation know that uh, they are now members of our church. So today I'm going to make them join me. Um, today I'm going to make them join me in the back so you can give them the right hand of fellowship. That doesn't mean smack them, that means shake their hand. So, uh, so uh, if you guys will join me after the service, after the invitation, we'd love to have uh, to give everybody the opportunity to say hi to you. Uh, Glenn is back with us um, since about Thanksgiving. Uh, Glenn has a medical emergency. I think it was the day before Thanksgiving, and um, and he's been kind of recovering since then. So we're glad to see Glenn back. Thank you. Uh, so we're glad to see him back. Praise the Lord. So uh, finally, we do have one uh, immediate prayer need. Um, Sue Collins was called out of Sunday school class um, pretty abruptly. Her brother had a heart attack. Is that correct? heart attack her brother had a heart attack and so um, she had to leave to go and take care of him or to go and, and be there with him so I wanted to spend just a couple of moments here um, let's pray for Sue and for her family uh, right now as, as, as she's she's dealing with this medical emergency Lord thank you for this opportunity weekend we have to gather but Lord we gather together one of the things we are commanded to do with one another is to pray with one another to bear one another's burdens and Lord, today we, we lift up Sue before you and her family. Lord, to pray with uh, you be with her brother who's had this heart attack. Lord, if it's your will, may you bring recovery. Um, uh, may you recover in this situation. Lord, we know you are the great physician, the great healer, and you can absolutely heal him. Uh, Lord, we, we pray for this uh, right now. Just pray you would be with the whole family as well as they deal with this, as they... 
uh, I'm sure have stress over this and are and maybe worried about about um, about him. I pray that you would give the family peace and comfort in this time, and that Lord, this situation would ultimately be used to bring you glory. In your name, Amen. amen. So John chapter six, beginning in verse sixty. Let's read this passage, and then we'll we'll uh, begin today. So. Uh, John chapter 6, beginning in verse 60, says this. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter said, answered him, Lord, To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. A new year brings new possibilities. Right, that's what we we talk about New Year's resolutions and all these other things that come along with the new year, and that's really what we're celebrating when we come to this time of year is the the chance for two thousand for for the next year to hold maybe different possibilities, especially uh, two thousand seventeen specifically this year. Um, though we we look, we take we two thousand sixteen is behind, and now two thousand seventeen is before, and there's a whole world of possibility opened up as a church and and, and as individuals. How will we then? In light of this possibility, how will we respond to the gospel? In this passage, we're not only reminded about exactly what is at stake in the gospel, but we are also shown the two primary responses to the gospel. Unfortunately, these responses are dramatically opposed to one another, leaving no middle ground. So let's kind of review. Where are we at? It's, we've, been, we've been going in John chapter 6 for a couple of weeks now. We had a break last week. So where are we at? Jesus, the beginning of John chapter 6, if you'll remember, fed 5,000 men, probably up to 15,000 people or more. Um, he fed them with five loaves and two fish. A great miracle. In that, Jesus afterwards began to teach these people. Remember at the end of that passage, the people wanted to make him king. So Jesus left and he went with his disciples uh, uh, to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And, and the people followed him. And, and now Jesus was teaching in the synagogue. And, he was, and these people were wanting to know more about what he was doing. And, he, and we saw a couple weeks ago, we saw this, uh, this great teaching, this long passage of teaching about... Sorry, we got some feedback here. Thank you, Mike. Um, yeah, I just wanted, uh, so, so we have this long passage of teaching where Jesus tries to explain or, or does explain what was intended by that miracle. He, he fed these people with this bread and what he explained to them is that he is the living bread. 
as, as Didi so uh, reminded us during the children's sermon, that he is the living bread. He is the living water. And he made some statements that seem kind of strange and would maybe even be a little offensive. We'll see, we'll see that as we move through uh, the pa- our, our, our sermon today. Now, this passage today that we're in, it marks a watershed in the Gospel of John. Um, Thus far, we have seen Jesus increasing in popularity and growing in his following. Yet today, we're going to see how the community of faith narrows down to those who are truly gathered to be instructed by the Messiah. In today's passage, we'll see that the Gospel is offensive, and it causes one of two reactions from people. One scholar writes that the gospel of Jesus Christ is a foreign language to the human heart. And more often than not, its message is offensive and rejected. So what's so offensive about the gospel? Why do we and others have, uh, have to react so strongly either for or against the gospel? Even more importantly, how will you react? Those are the questions we're going to ask as we move into this text. First point we'll see today from the beginning of this passage, the gospel causes many to respond in offense. Now, again, you may think, what do you mean offensive? Like calling people fat and saying, hey, you're, you know, you're stupid. You know, is that what you mean by offensive? No, it's what's talking about. The word here is, is the Greek word scandalizo, right? It's to be offensive, right? It's offensive. It's a, it's a, it's a scandal, Right, and we'll, we'll unpack what, what, was act, what was actually offending these people. We see at the beginning of this passage, they say, many of his disciples heard it and they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? This thing that Jesus just said is really difficult. Now, what are they referring to? It was probably one of, if not all four, of these different things that he had just talked about. One, these people were more interested in food or a political messiah and manipulative miracles than in the spiritual realities to which the feeding miracle had pointed. So that was one aspect where they they were offended. They were looking for food. They were looking for somebody to overthrow Rome. They were looking for whatever they could, but they were not looking for the spiritual Messiah that Jesus was. Secondly, they were unprepared to relinquish their own sovereign authority, even in matters of religion, and therefore were incapable of taking the first steps of genuine faith. They did not want to let go of control. They wanted control of their lives. Jesus was calling them to let go of that control, and they did not want to let go of that control. That is still offensive today. Both of these points still cause offense today. Think of the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, right? If I believe in Jesus, I'll be able to drive a BMW. If I believe in Jesus, all of my illnesses are going to be cured. And then you find out that's not the gospel. That's a false gospel. It's a gospel that doesn't save. It's a gospel that's not true. You go, what am I supposed to get out of this? Right? Or maybe the second point here, that you're unprepared to relinquish your own spiritual, your own sovereign authority. I want control of my world. The gospel says you don't have control. You can't save yourself. You can't do it. That's offensive especially in, a, in an American culture where you can do whatever you want if you put your mind to it, right? Nope, you can't save yourself. Sorry, you can't do whatever you want. False, right? That's an offensive message. Third, maybe the, they were, in, in particular, they were offended at the claims uh, that Jesus advanced, claiming to be greater than Moses, uniquely sent by God and authorized to give life, right? 
You think you're, you're better than our favorite person in the world? Who do you think you are? Right? Don't we do the same thing? Jesus is better than Donald Trump. Right? Amen. Right? But some people might get really offended by that. Like, no. I hope not, right? Because Jesus certainly is greater than any political figure that could be produced. He's better than any president that's ever existed, any king that's ever existed, any celebrity that has ever existed. I mourned when Carrie Fisher passed away because I love Star Wars. Jesus is far better, though. I don't mean to make light of, the, of all the death that happened in 2016, but I want us to understand something that Jesus is better than those things. Whoever we may elevate on a pedestal, Jesus far outranks all of them. And maybe fourthly, the, the last thing that may have offended them is this extended metaphor he gives on bread where he tell, told, talked about eating my flesh and drinking my blood. Right, as we saw a couple weeks ago, he was using that as a metaphor to talk about believing in him and having, putting your faith in him. Right? And these people probably took that literally like, oh, I'm not a cannibal. That's disgusting. Right? And they got offended by what Jesus said. So all of these aspects were all of what Jesus had just told them, and it hit all of these different pressure points, and they were offended. They were very offended. What? This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Verse 41, but Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? So what are we getting here? What's going on? What, it says that they were grumbling, right? The people were grumbling. Now, as, as, we, as we read in our scripture reading, uh, we, talked, we, we looked at how the people of Israel grumbled in the wilderness and God gave them manna. They gave them bread from heaven. Now, again, what had Jesus just been talking about? That he is the bread from heaven. He is the greater manna. Right? So in this, in the way John is presenting this, he is presenting these people who are taking offense as grumbling Israel in the wilderness. Continuing this whole portrayal of Jesus as the greater Moses. The prophet like Moses who will bring salvation. Continuing on that same thing. Continuing bringing back and recycling these themes from Exodus. The, the author, uh, the, the apostle John is, is showing us in even more detail how this is all coming together, right? With the people who grumble in Israel, and here we have the people who are grumbling again. They're grumbling and complaining about what Jesus is teaching them. <clears throat> Verse 62 then. Jesus says, then do you take offense at this at the end of 61? Then verse 62, then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Now then, in this, in this particular phrase here, he's saying, basically saying, if you think that was offensive, you're really going to be offended. When, like, I'm crucified, you know, your Messiah is crucified. When I, when I raise from the dead and ascend back into heaven, that's really going to freak you out if that freaked you out. Right? And so there's a couple of things that, are, that, that Jesus kind of uh, shows here. Um, one, again, the notion of a crucified Messiah proves offensive to many in the first and subsequent se uh, centuries. Now, in fact, this is actually a historical fact that there were many who rejected Christianity because they couldn't believe this idea that God would die, that God would take on humanity and die. That doesn't make any sense whatsoever. 
In fact, uh, there was a, a couple of famous works um, that were about used this very kind of argumentation. Uh, one was a Jewish man named Trypho arguing with with uh, with. Um, with an apologist, well, he was a, a scholar, a, a Christian scholar named Justin Martyr. Um, and in, in this argument back and forth, that's one of the things he says, but uh, your guy dies. So how does that work? And what does Justin do? He shows, yeah, Isaiah 53 said so. So good point, right? The Bible already said it would happen. The Bible that the Jews would have already been reading said it said it would happen and it's just fulfilled now. But he rose again too. Right. Uh, further, there was a, a Greek scholar named Celsus. He was a, a, a Gentile. He was a, he was a Greek person. He was a philosopher, and that was one of his arguments. How can you worship somebody that died? That's ridiculous. You worship people who are heroes, not people who die, right? And this is so it's offensive. This idea that we would have a God who humbles himself to death is a really offensive concept. Right? It, it, it's, it's scandalous to think of. And the apologists, um, many of the uh, early, early Christians were, were working hard to defend this belief because it was true. They were defending what they, what we, what they believed as Christians, what we believe as Christians. The reference also is to Jesus' ascent into heaven, include, which also includes an affirmation of his preexistence. He's saying, when I go back to where I came from, and by saying that, he's saying, I came from Heaven. I existed beforehand. I existed before I was here. I've always existed, right? So there's all sorts of offensive things that are taking place right here. It also suggests that the crucifixion is not the end of the story and that his ascension would be every bit as, as striking as his forceful death. So in rejecting the gospel then, in being offended by the gospel, in, ref in, in rejecting this gospel, these disciples, if you look back at the passage, it says many of his disciples heard it. Jesus knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling. So these are people who, who are following Jesus. They were his disciples. They were not just rejecting the cross. They were not just rejecting Jesus's message. They were in fact rejecting God himself. That's what they were rejecting. And their, cho and their choice to see this as offensive and to, just, and to ultimately, in verse 66, reject the gospel, they're ultimately rejecting God himself. As we reflect on this passage then, are we, are we offended by the gospel? Are you offended by the gospel? Does the idea that God would take on humanity through a virgin birth so that he could die a cruel death on a cross and raise from the dead three days later and ascend back into heaven, does that offend you? You may think that it's all a bunch of kids' stories. However, as we'll see in this passage, the truth of the gospel is the difference between life and death. If you are not a believer, if you're not a Christian, you have no, and you, or you have no desire to believe the gospel, let me ask you to just consider for the rest of this message, what if it is true? What if it is true? If it's true, let me warn you right now that if Jesus really is who he says he is, you are in serious danger. If Jesus really is the son of God and really did die and raise from the dead, then whatever you have devoted your life to apart from Jesus will only fail you and ultimately will lead to eternal separation from God in a very real place called hell. Not of the Christian. Are you offended by the gospel? 
The work of the gospel does not end with praying a prayer and certainly does not end with getting dunked in a pool. As we'll continue to see, the gospel has ramifications for our entire lives. The gospel may be offensive to you because it calls you to live in submission to Jesus Christ rather than living according to your own desires. Jesus calls those who would follow him um, to place their relationship with Christ at a higher priority than your family. Is that offensive to you? Jesus calls his followers to live open-handedly with their money. Is that offensive? He tells a rich young ruler to give away all that he has and follow him. Was he kidding? Sometimes we treat such statements in scripture as mere jests, like he's just joking around or just, he doesn't really mean that. Like Jesus doesn't really mean what he says. In this passage, we see that there's a big difference between being a disciple and being a true disciple. Between being a Christian and being a true Christian. What I mean by that is that you can call yourself anything you want. Especially in our culture today. You can call yourself anything you want. You can come to church every Sunday. We can, we, you can read your Bible and pray every day. Look at verse 60 and 61 again. Jesus calls these people, what does he call these people who are grumbling? They're his disciples. They were following Jesus, but they had not submitted to him and to his teaching. We can come to church every day and still be stuck in our own selfish pride that we cannot and will not repent of sin or submit to the will of God or be conformed into the image of God by submitting to the teachings of his word. There's a great distance between cultural Christianity and truly following the Lord Jesus Christ. As we mentioned already, there's no halfway point here. There's no, you either reject the gospel or you're all in, and then there's some people that are kind of like in the middle, and that's okay. Right? No, you're either one or the other. There is no middle ground. The same can also be said to our church. The Bible says a lot about what churches are supposed to look like, what they're supposed to act like, what our mission ought to be, where our focuses should be. Do we take offense at those commands? Or do we submit to Scripture? Does the town of Gordon know that we are here to fulfill the Great Commission? Or are we merely a functional social club? Does Gordon know that we have one singular goal and that is to see people come to Christ and to have life? Or are we just another building? Are we as a church obedient to the commands of Christ? Or are we taking offense to the gospel? Second, we see here, the gospel is the words of life. Look at what Jesus says here. It is the spirit who gives life, verse 63. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. Let's pause right there. It says the spirit who gave life. It's the spirit who gives life. Salvation is a Trinitarian process. It involves the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Father is the one who planned the whole thing. The Son is the one who 
enacts that covenant, who enacts that salvation, who brings that salvation. And the Holy Spirit is the one who draws us to repentance, the one who seals us in our salvation. It is the Holy Spirit then also, and with the whole Trinity, who gives life. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. Well, this is not saying, let's, let's not get confused here. This is not saying that this stuff is unimportant. Jesus took on flesh. Clearly, there is some importance to flesh. What this is talking about, remember we've been seeing the difference between understanding what Jesus says in just a surface level way versus understanding the spiritual meaning behind it. That's what Jesus is talking about. The flesh is of no help at all. Human reasoning, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, cannot understand the gospel. Cannot understand the gospel. Unaided by the Spirit, we are, uh, we are unable to discern what is spiritual. Jesus also then says here, uh, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Jesus equates his own teaching, his own words with the very words of God. The Old Testament is clear that the, that the words of God bring life, that, the, that God is spirit and the words of God bring life. Jesus says, my words are the very words of God. They bring life and spirit. His words are spirit and life. Because Jesus is God, his words and teaching have the capacity to give life to all those who will believe or trust him in his sacrifice. Then verse 64, but there are some of you who do not believe. Now remember, we've already seen this, that, that the word believe is not just a mental thing. It's not just something you think about or something that you know in your head. It also includes action. Believe is to believe it, to trust in Jesus, but also to show that in our actions. Right? So when he says this here again, there are many of you who do not believe. He's not necessarily saying there's some of you who don't get it. He's saying there's some of you who just aren't, you don't get it and you're not living it. You're, just, you're missing the point completely. Jesus then, there's a, John then gives a parenthesis here. It says, for Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. Jesus knew this from the beginning. Now this is, this beginning has several under, several possibilities. One, it, it's, it's talking surely from when Jesus called, called the first disciples. Surely uh, talking about from the beginning of this period of time where he's giving this teaching, he knew who in this crowd was going to believe in him and who wasn't. And he knew that since the, he started breaking bread with the, with the feeding of the 5,000. However, this also harkens us back to John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus knew before he even came to this earth who would believe in him and who would not believe in him. And he knew who, who would betray him. And yet here he is, fulfilling the will of the Lord anyway. Knowing that there are people, that most of the people in this crowd were going to walk away from him. Here he is teaching them. What a gracious Savior we have. That he pursues us. Even when we don't deserve to be pursued from the very beginning. He knows who is worth pursuing, who's not. Yet he pursues us anyway. What a great thing to know. Verse 65 then, and he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. Jesus reiterates what he had said previously in chapter 6 and verse 44. You cannot save yourself. Only those who are brought by the Father can be saved. That's it. You don't control your salvation. 
You don't determine your salvation. That is determined by God and God alone. Only he can save. We choose to submit or not to submit to the saving work of Christ. The message of the gospel is the difference between life and death. Believe, we see Jesus here talking about how his words are spirit and life. Believing in Jesus Christ is knowing and trusting that what he says about himself is true, that he is Lord, that his sacrifice on the cross paid for your sin debt, that his resurrection canceled the power of sin and death. After becoming a true follower of Jesus, the gospel calls us to live according to the teachings in scripture. This is the way that leads to life. To reject the gospel, to choose to follow your own compass, to refuse to admit and repent of sin, to instead pursue your own pleasure and your own self-idolatry is the way that leads to death. Not just dying and being eaten by worms, but eternal and spiritual death. A death that includes eternal separation from God in a place called hell. The good news is that through Christ, you are offered life. True life. What will you choose? Next, we'll see that there's two ultimate choices that stand before you as you, as you, as you, as you stand on the brink of a new year. Third, we see that the proper response to the gospel is complete dependence. Complete dependence. Verse 66 starts this way. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Lots of people made a choice right there. Literally, they turned back and went away to the things they had left behind. It's literally what's going on here. These same people who were ready to make Jesus their king were so offended by the gospel that they just went back to what they had left behind. They went back to their old lives. Now, isn't this exactly what we do so often? Pause here real quick. Isn't this exactly what we do? Before we point our fingers and say, yeah, those guys do that. Isn't this the same thing we do? As we stand on the cusp of a new year, many of you have made resolutions. I know I have. Hopefully some of those resolutions have been biblically centered. Maybe you've determined to read your Bible more, pray more, attend church more regularly, or whatever the case may be. What happens though? Too often, we get caught up in other things, let other things take priority, and just go back to our old ways, our old idols. Whatever that may be. You know, I, I'm, I'm going to spend the first 30 minutes every morning in prayer. And what do we do instead? The alarm goes off 30 minutes earlier than we usually would have it go off, and we hit the snooze button. Right? Am I alone here? Nope. Right? <laughs> huh? <laughs> but, you know, we, we do, we, you know, we like sleep. And so instead of pursuing Christ... And obeying Christ, we choose to worship our own idols of sleep, maybe. Or whatever the case may be. You know, I'm going to read my Bible more this year. And what do we do? We get home and Netflix gets turned on. As it does at my house. Or the television, whatever. And you spend the rest of the night until you go to sleep binge-watching your favorite season of whatever show. I'm not even going to try to fill in the blanks there. Right, and then where did the time that you were going to spend to read the Bible go? 
Well, you know, I'll do it tomorrow. I'll do it tomorrow. I'll do it tomorrow. We do the same thing. We leave Jesus and go back to our old ways. We go back to our old, to our old ways and our old idols. The, thankfully, the story doesn't end there. Um, it does, it does, this is kind of a bleak picture. This passage does kind of end on a, on a, on a seemingly note of failure. Um, however, there's, there's, a, there's a glimmer of hope here. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Everybody else left. Do you guys want to go too? Now the passage seems to su- suggest that po- it's very possible that everybody else except the 12 disciples left. Everyone else. Remember how many people were there at the feeding of the 5,000? About 15,000 people possibly there. How many of those people followed him over there? Let's say at least a third of them. Let's say 5,000 people followed Jesus over to, to where he was now. All but 12 left. Walked away. Notice that Jesus also didn't go, hey, but please, oh, wait, oh, let, me, let me change my message. If I change what I'm preaching, will you come back? He doesn't do that. He lets him go. It's okay. You don't want to follow me anymore? Go. No one's stopping you. He turns to his disciples and says, do you want to go too? Now, the way he asks the question actually assumes a negative answer. So he's assuming that they're going to say no. In fact, the way he asks the question is really saying, surely you don't want to go away too, do you? It's kind of, kind of the, the idea of what he's getting at here. It's very possible that the 12 are the only ones who, who have stayed. Now, look at how Peter responds here. He says, Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? To whom shall we go? Where else can we go? Where else? To whom shall we go? What other options are there? Look what he says. He continues on here. You have the words of eternal life. Jesus had just said, my words are spirit and life. And, and Peter may not have understood a whole lot of what Jesus was saying, but he got that part. Right? He says, you have the words of eternal life. Who else has those? Nobody. We're, why would we leave? You've got the answers. You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Uh, the idea here, these two words here, when he describes how they, how they are responding, he says, we, um, we have... Uh, uh, excuse me, we have believed and we have come to know. The way those verbs are, um, those verbs indicate that there is a past action, that that action, the, the application of those actions continues on to the present, okay? It's a, it's a certain type of, of verb that's used there that has that kind of, it's got that strength of an idea. So ultimately what, what Peter is saying is here, he says, where it says we have believed, he is saying that we have come to a place of faith and we continue here. We've come to a place of faith, and here we are still. Further, he says, and we have come to know. That idea is also this idea of we have, is, we have recognized the truth, and we hold on to it. It's not something we just did once in the past. We didn't just believe once, and there it is. We didn't just know this once, and there it is. It's we believe this, and we still believe this now. We know this, and we still know it. We still hold on to that truth, even today. Nothing's changed. That's the gospel. This is why when preachers say, 
that the gospel doesn't just end when you get saved. This is because it's a continuing thing. It's something you believed it, right? When I got saved at around 12 or 13 years old, that was the event that took place where I became a Christian. I didn't stop believing though. I believed it then and I still hold on to that belief today. And it's firmer and stronger, even to the point where I've said before, I believe in the resurrection of Christ more than I believe in my own existence. I more firmly believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God than I even believe that I'm a carter. That's how firmly I believe. Jesus makes sure, though, that Peter, Peter's kept in check. He makes this, this bold statement, this bold proclamation. It says, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. It was a messianic term. He was, uh, he, he's declaring that he is the Messiah. He's the Holy One of God. And then Jesus answers, did I not choose you, the twelve? Now you think, again, Jesus never responds like we'd expect him to respond, does he? At this point, you may, we might think Jesus is like, good job, Peter. Good answer. Yeah, like it. And instead, what does he say? He says, didn't I choose you? What do you mean you believed? And you've, you know, I chose you. You're not the important one here. You didn't save yourself. I chose you. Right? Jesus, Jesus makes sure that Peter's motives are kept in check here. Peter has partially claimed that he and the 12 are the ones who have secured their salvation by believing and trusting Christ. Yet, Jesus is quick to remind them that he chose them. He further shows that his choosing was in full recognition of his own purposes. Look at this. And yet, one of you is a devil. I chose you, and one of you is a devil. John explains to us exactly what Jesus is talking about. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Now, if I knew that one of you guys was going to betray me, right? If I had full knowledge that Wayne was going to stab me in the back, do you think I would spend a lot of time around Wayne? Probably not, because I love self-preservation, right? I'm good at that. Not dying is something I, I try to do on a regular basis. However, Jesus has full knowledge that this guy is going to stab him in the back, that he is going to betray him in the garden and sell him out. And what does he do? Hey, come follow me. Wow. Jesus knew fully what his mission was. He came to die for our sins, and he is not going to let anything stand in the way of that. Even by picking the very person who is going to betray him, saying, you need to be next to me because you're going to betray me, so that I can die and be crucified and raised from the dead and conquer sin. Jesus was so focused on his goal. What a wonderful truth. And he didn't let something like that get in the way of him bringing salvation to us. What a wonderful Savior we have. Look back again at Peter's response to the Lord. He says, to whom shall we go? The response of a true believer is complete submission. Complete submission. Where else can we go? Where else can we find life? Money, relationships, 
Jobs, even religious activity on its own, cannot bring life. You can come to church every day from today until the rest of your life and never miss a Sunday, and it's not going to save you. Coming into this building does not impart some kind of spiritual air on you that makes you good till next week. It doesn't. Only believing on the Lord Jesus Christ brings life. The life of a Christian is one of total submission to Christ and to his teaching. Nothing that this world has to offer can bring salvation. Only Christ can bring salvation. Do you really believe that? Not just searching for amens here. Do you really believe that? Can you really, with Peter, say, where else could I go? If Jesus was to say, do you want to leave too? Can you with Peter say, where else could I go? What other options are there? Or would you be like many of these other people who left and say, well, okay, I mean, I can make a whole lot more money doing something else. You know, if I don't have to follow you, I can live my life however I want to. I can enjoy all the pleasures of life if I don't have to follow Jesus. Sure, I'm going to get out of this then. Where else can we go? And really, if you're a true believer, that should, that should be our response. What else is there? Why would I go anywhere else? What, what, other, what possible reason would I have to prioritize anything else above this? The answer is none. There's nowhere but Christ. Are there areas of our lives in, in, in action where we answer the question, where shall we go with anything other than the answer of Jesus? Belief in Jesus is not some one-time thing. But as we saw, it's something that we continually do. We continually believe and continually know that Jesus is the only source of our lives. Our very actions need to show that truth. Where are your priorities? Where are my priorities? As we're faced with our weeks, as we're faced with a new year, what will you choose? Will you choose with the 12? Say, I've got nowhere else to go but to Jesus. That's it. And how will the choices you make this year reflect that answer? Or will you respond like the many of the disciples that were here responded and go back to where we were? We challenge us today as a church as we move into 2017. What is God calling us to do? Where is God moving us? Not what do I want to do, not what do you want to do, not what are my preferences, what am I this, what am I that. That's not the question I'm asking. What does Scripture and the Lord demand of us? And why, and, and are we rejecting that calling? Are we offended by that calling? Or are we responding with, what else would we do? Your word says to do it, what else would we do? As we conclude this service, kind of have two major applications that we want to think through as we come to the invitation. First of all, if you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, I asked you, I asked you at the beginning of this service to, to consider the options. The risk of not believing in the Lord are far, far outweigh the risk of, uh, of other risks. If Jesus, if Jesus is truly who he says he is, then nothing else can bring us life except for him. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. There's only one option. 
No, Christians as well. How are we living our lives? As I said, there's no halfway point. There's no sitting in a pew Christian. There's either full out obedience and submission to Christ and full dependence on him, or there's rejecting him. If you think, well, maybe there is a middle position. What, you, what that middle position is, is rejecting him. Only maybe not so strongly. Maybe not like the atheist does. But rejecting him in other ways. What choice will you make as we enter into 2017? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for this opportunity we have once again to come to your house, to come before your word. Lord, to be challenged by your word. Lord, this challenged me all week studying this passage. But Lord, I pray that my response would be, as it was Peter's, where else can I go? Lord, I pray that you'd be be with us during this time of invitation, that we would be responsive to you, that we would be submissive to you. In your name, amen.